upon the death. Sing it twice like we've been singing it, second part with second time with six parts. <clears throat> and then we will quote our memory. I'll say here ahead of time. Tomorrow what I'm going to do is pass out sheets for you to write your memory on. Uh, because if I say get your own piece of paper, I'll get some this size, I'll get some this size. <laughs> so I'll pass out paper so you each have the same size. And we're not going to take time to write the whole thing. We will write about three or four of the verses. I'm not going to tell you which ones, so you should learn it all. And we will grade it, and I will tell you ahead of time, each word will be worth two points. There will be approximately 50, 60 words. So you know now what, what we're going to do tomorrow. Uh, you'll get a piece of paper. I'll tell you which verses to write. We'll grade it here in class. Or you'll put your name on it, and you'll pass them in. And then I'll look at them and... Uh, for my own opinions. <laughs> okay. Be, be thou faithful unto death. No, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life, a glorious crown of life. Be Let's quote, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of him, Jesus our Lord, according as he has chosen us. I'm sorry, I should be reading this. All right, let's start there again. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. And then, let's say the last verse, those of you who've already memorized it. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for those remarkable resources. And Lord, they are abundantly above what we would ever expect. 
as finite human beings, that you would entrust such infinite resources to us, that you would give us the ministry of reconciliation, that you would give us the, the uh, tremendous task of demonstrating the ideal society in a wicked world. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help each person here to grasp that vision that Brother Mick so beautifully pictured this morning and would put their whole heart into actualizing it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. While Brother Mick was talking this morning, I was thinking, my mind is always uh, working. (laughs) And uh, the thing I really appreciated about the way he concluded his message, you know, sometimes this picture is painted and you say, well, how can I enter into this huge ministry? And he pictured it in being faithful in little things. And I remember an illustration that Philip Rudolph gave years ago that I never forgot. He pictured this young fellow who really wanted to do something great for the Lord. So he was in his bedroom praying, oh, Lord, show me some ministry. And he was going on and on and on. And after a bit, his mom knocked on the door and said, Tom, would you come down and wash up the, wash the dishes? Oh, Mom, I'm here praying for the Lord's will for my life. And uh, Philip said it like he could say it. He said here he was expecting God's will to come through the ceiling, and it came through the door. (laughs) I never forgot the uh, tremendous lesson that represents. And, And that also reminded me of my favorite character in Silas Marner. How many have ever read that novel? You should. Uh... One of the very, very minor characters is Dolly Winthrop. She's an illiterate woman. She can't read. Uh, she puts uh, uh, some symbols on every little cake she bakes uh, from off the uh, uh, altar in the church. She says she doesn't know what it means, but she said if, if it's something good, you need to plug that into your life. And so she put that on all her cakes. That's the kind of person she was. But she was a very devout uh, person, very dedicated to what she knew was right. And so Silas came to her and asked her about the biggest problem he ever had in his life and wanted her to explain why this happened to him. And she said, well, Silas, I never can figure out those big things in life. But I found that the duties in life are always very clear. They're right in front of your nose. And if you do those, the big things take care of themselves. That's what Brother Mick was trying to say to you. And that's what I have found. I never tried to figure out some huge ministry. But I always did, looking back on my life, I did one thing right and many things wrong. I always put my whole heart into it. If they gave me a little primary class to teach in Sunday school, I I worked my uh, week, all week, to think of the very best way I could teach that lesson to the children. If they gave me devotional in church, I worked hard to get myself a little outline, not just stand up. Have you seen these devotions where people stand up and they read a passage and then they go down and they just sort of paraphrase each verse? And you can see they really didn't put an awful lot into their preparation to try to figure out how they could prepackage this in a way that would make an impression. Well, if somebody gives you an assignment like that, put your whole heart into it and make it a really worthwhile contribution to the best of your ability with all the prayer and concentration and understanding you can bring to it. And if if you will approach all of the opportunities you have in life that way, I guarantee you that God will open one door after another. And you'll look back someday and say, how did I ever get into this arena? Well, it was through the little Little things. 
And God watches that because it says, he that is faithful in least will be faithful also in much. Okay, I uh, had to tell you that. All right, let's turn to 2 Peter. <clears throat> we talked about the danger of false prophets yesterday. Today we will talk about the doom of false prophets to begin. What the false prophet forgets is <laughs> that God is in control. All right? And he will judge whoever needs to be judged to save the cosmos. God so loved the world. He loved the cosmos. It wasn't just the people in the world. He loved his entire creation. He had created an orderly creation. And man, by his sin, threw a monkey wrench, not only into human experience, he threw a monkey wrench into the creation. He threw chaos into cosmos. And God will do whatever needs to be done to restore the cosmos. And that's what evil people forget. And there are three examples here that he gives us to show us that that's what happens. Not even the angels are spared. The angels that sinned were were judged. How much less will he judge men if he did that to angels? They were cast out of heaven for defying God's authority. And they were placed in the lowest hell, Tartarus. And their doom is sealed. Okay? So the first point, the first thing he tells us, we should read this passage. Let's read uh, verses uh, 4 through 10. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those who after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed by the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation, and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished." but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Do you notice the two things that stand out as as the reason for everything in this awful list he's going to give us? Two things. One is they despise government, rebellion. And the second thing is uncleanness, immorality. Those two motivations underlie all evil. Okay? unbridled uh, indulgence of the flesh, and rebellion against authority. And whether that is little or much in your life, learn to hate it with a passion. Okay? Those are the most horrible, insidious, undermining characteristics that a human being can possibly embrace. I just want to point that out. He summarized, before he gives the list, he tells you what's at the root of all of it. Rebellion... If you find yourself in any kind of rebellion and resistance against authority in your life, or you find yourself undisciplined in the desires that you have, take that seriously. Those are two damnable roots of sin. Okay, so he didn't spare the angels. That's the first thing we notice here. The second thing, the men of the flood, um, I'm sorry. He destroyed the men men with the flood and rescued Noah. Now, it's interesting that Peter, in both 1 Peter and 2 Peter, have a particular focus 
on <clears throat> the sin of angels and the flood. And Jewish tradition says that back there in Genesis 6, where it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives, and, and there were uh, giants born. Uh, now, there's a lot of dispute about that passage, but I'm going to give you what the Jews believed about it. Uh, the Jews believed that uh, evil angels actually cohabited with humans and produced giants, giant sinners. Now, when I was in high school in ninth grade, <clears throat> I told you we studied Latin in, uh, in school, and uh, so the first year of Latin was Greek mythology. And I've often reflected on those characters that we read about, wondering if they weren't reminiscent of this. Because you had those, those uh, superhuman beings, Hercules, Ajax, um, I wrote some of them down here, uh, Atlas, Titan, Hercules. I've often wondered if that wasn't a memory of, of those people, those superhuman uh, persons in, in, in history. Well, anyway, <clears throat> the, what the Jews believe is that the devil understood when God promised a redeemer to uh, Eve, Adam and Eve. And he determined to corrupt the human race so that could never be possible. And they believed, and I believe, that in First Peter, when it talks about Jesus going and preaching to those in prison, it seems to me like he went there to say, you tried to prevent me from coming into the world? Here I am. Here I am. You did not succeed in corrupting the human race and preventing my appearance. I'll just give that for what it's worth. But anyway, the sin introduced in that incident, whatever it means about the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, Whatever that was, it produced a race of horrible people. And God did not hesitate to destroy the entire world to remove that. Okay? <clears throat> the emphasis now turns to the fact that in that he also had salvation in mind. Okay? God is just as de uh, dedicated to preserving the righteous as he is to destroying sin. And that's a great encouragement to us. God is not going to let sin run rampant. He will do something to preserve righteousness for those who want to help preserve righteousness. And so God is on your side. If you're in a situation where sin seems to be reigning and you're on the side of what's righteous, God's on your side. And he will deal with the situation. The, uh, this verse was already quoted this morning. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world to show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. And you can depend upon that. God destroyed the whole world for the benefit of one man and his family, and that was Noah. And he got all that evil out of the way so righteousness would have a fresh chance to survive. The third thing that he mentions here is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he also mentions the rescue of Lot. <laughs> he's, he's not just destroying evil, he's preserving, preserving what's right. Now, what was going on in Sodom? Well, Sodom was a place where there was unrestrained lust uh, that had developed into a rage against anything right. These people insulted angels. And one of them, I think, was Christ himself. And these men had no problem uh, threatening God himself. Ezekiel 16, 49 says, The root of their ungodliness was pride, Fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, 
and no effort to strengthen the hands of the poor. Self was in uncontrolled uh, ascendancy there. They were destroyed, but Lot was rescued. He was vexed by their sin. He never got used to it. I will give Lot that credit. Lot could have done better than he did. Uh, What's Lot's legacy? Does anybody know who his descendants were? Moab and Ammon. Two evil tribes. Moab especially worshipped the god Chemosh and burned their children alive to that god. These were the descendants of Lot. And the problem with Lot was he was, I think, sort of passive. He never, he never got used to the sin. You know, you walk into a restaurant and it's dark, but if you stay there long enough, you know, your eyes adjust and after that you can see things. Uh, but uh, uh, we get used to the dark is what I'm saying if we're not careful. Lot never got used to it. He was vexed, but I'm not sure how much he did about it. And he ended up leaving that horrible legacy. All right. <clears throat> No one will play games with God. That's what he's saying here. Uh, if, if you're going to let rebellion and you're going to let unrestrained fleshly desires reign in your life, uh, you will not win that one, okay? So now, that comes, we, we come now to the part of our outline uh, designated for today. Bad character tells, oh my, what an awful list. Impudently irreverent, insatiably immoral, intentionally, intentionally ignorant, insidiously ill-tempered. I mean, they, they try, I mean, I'm sorry, ill-intentioned. Uh, they, they have a secret agenda and irredeemably iniquitous. All right. Bad character tells. Learn to recognize it. That's the whole point of the morning message. Learn to recognize the uh, bad character because people are not going to uh, tell you that they're bad characters. They're going to try to present themselves as a good character. They're not going to put that out front. You're going to have to be able to see the signs of bad character behind people who are trying to put on a good front. And so here they are, totally exposed. The Bible says even a child is known by his doings. So if you, if you train yourself, you can learn to see the characteristics and you can make judgments not to condemn people, but judgments so you can make good decisions. Uh, we don't condemn people. Uh, that, that Jesus didn't even come to condemn the world, but he did tell us to discriminate, to learn to know a bad tree from a good tree. Uh, I think we have, have to be careful then how we relate to the bad tree. Uh, we need to uh, not condemn. Uh, of course, the word condemn sort of gives itself away. Look at that and see if you could change one letter, and that'll tell you what condemning is all about. Okay, We don't do that. But we do make judgments. We do learn to discriminate. And, and our purpose is that these evil people, that we can somehow hold out some hope of redemption to them and learn to do it in a way that perhaps can break through all of their facade and all of their pride and, and uh, find a vulnerable place in their life. I had to learn that. I mean, I, I, uh, in the past, I did an awful lot of uh, condemning. Uh, But that's not our purpose. Our purpose is not to condemn. Our purpose is, first of all, to make our own decisions well and then find a way to reach these people who need to be helped if we can. All right. False teachers try to conceal the reality about themselves. Mark that down. They never come out and tell you what they're all about. They conceal that. They deliberately do it. But behind the desperately maintained facade 
is an obvious reality. And I want you to write this down. Undisciplined living. I've spent most of my teaching ministry trying to warn young people to avoid the undisciplined way. The undisciplined way is always the wrong way. So if you see somebody who's undisciplined, oh, they're living, that should be a red flag right there. Undisciplined living is always wrong. Undisciplined living will always lead to more and more excess. And so that is the red flag you need to look for. In fact, Jesus said it himself. He said that straight is the gate that leads to life and broad is the gate that leads to death. And we all know that's true. We all know that disciplined disciplined a disciplined approach to something leads to freedom you see somebody play the piano and they have master, they've mastered that keyboard and it looks like they're just having a ball playing on that keyboard where did that freedom come from it came from hours and hours of practicing all those finger exercises and all those scales until they were second nature discipline Or someone who speaks a foreign language fluently. How did they get the freedom to just talk to people with that language? Well, it was discipline. The first year, I guarantee you, uh, Mick, did it take about a year to at least begin to sort of have the vocabulary and the sin? Yeah. Pure, Pure discipline for about a year before you begin to experience a little bit of freedom. Or some artist that uh, puts a piece a poster board on the wall, I always marvel, and they pull out a couple pieces of chalk, and they go, and it looks like a rooster that's ready to crow. If I did that, you'd have to say, what is it? What's behind that freedom? Hours and hours of practice with, with perspective and color and light and shadow until they could just do it second nature. I mean, you can go down through life. Anything that's worthwhile that looks like it's free or that is free, mark it down. There was discipline behind that. Our world thinks freedom is just going out and just whatever. (laughs) That's not freedom. Anybody can do that. That's nothing to admire whatsoever. Anybody can put big tires on his car and go to the uh, place and tramp on it. (laughs) I mean, anybody can do that. That takes no brains at all. And certainly no discipline. I mean, I actually, I used to look at that kind of stuff and it disgusted me. Now I look at it and I actually laugh. I think, who, what do they think they're accomplishing? All right. Mark it down. The signal characteristic of all apostasy is undisciplined living. Discipline leads to freedom. Not always. When Hitler threw those people into those concentration camps, uh, Auschwitz said, Arbeit macht frei, which meant work makes free. Well, it didn't in that camp. Uh, So that... (laughs) We're not talking about that. We're talking about the disciplines of life. If you want freedom, you're going to have to put your shoulder to the wheel and learn some discipline. 
okay? And if you see someone who's taking an undisciplined way, that's a red flag. Just That's just a red flag. That in and of itself is the characteristic of apostasy. And what is apostasy? The word literally means a revolt, an overthrow, to roll back. It means to regress. It means to throw away. It means to destroy. That's what apostasy is. It's an abandonment abandonment of a previous order. This word is not found in the Bible, but it is described by Peter. It's also described by Paul. We could turn back and read that horrible list in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Jesus talked about it. He talked about the person who shows tares among the wheat. He talked about the sheep and the goats. Jesus, in many of his parables, referred to this awful thing called apostasy, even though the term is not in the Bible. So let's talk about the characteristics of these people. The first one I have here is verses 10 and 12a. Let's read them. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil dignities, where they as the angels, which are greater in power and might bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of things they don't even understand and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. So the first thing we have listed here is they're impudently, and a person who's impudent is a person who's just plain down uh, grossly irreverent. They're impudently irreverent. Uh, Well, the word impudent has the idea they have no knowledge. They just, they think they're smart, but they're not. This person despises government. Any kind of order is a nuisance to them. They don't like order. This passage does not reflect a reasoned approach to life. This is unreasonable. The responses is based the responses are based on a perverse moral bent, rebellion and an undisciplined life, rebellion and lust. Aldous Huxley who wrote that awful book Brave New World was an atheist. And I'm going to read what he said. At the end of his life, he never became a believer, but he did write a little essay at the end of his life called Confessions of an Atheist. He explained the motives behind being, his motives behind his being an atheist. He didn't repent of it, but he explained it. This is what he said. I had motives for not wanting the world to have any meaning. See, I said it's illogical. They're not looking for meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had no meaning and was able without too much difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning for this world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics or spirituality. The world, that means the world beyond scientific investigation. I'll read that again. The philosopher who finds no meaning for this world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he should not personally do as he wants to do. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation sexually and politically. That's interesting that he said that. I told you that immorality and rebellion, and he says he wanted liberation for his sexuality and he wanted liberation from government. There it is, just exactly like it is in the Bible. And I don't even know if he knew that passage was there, but there it is. Those are the two things that are driving this. Rebellion, 
wanting to get all order and all restraint out of the way and then indulge your lusts. That's what it is. Presumptuous, this word that we have here, means overstepping the bounds of propriety and taking liberties. This is the sin that God hates above all others. It comes from the word presume. You're presuming on God's mercy. You're going to do this sin, and then you'll repent later. Assuming God will let you live until you repent. And people call me on the phone sometimes and say, well, what happens if I do something and then I plan to repent after I do it? And I say, well, suppose you had a friend and uh, you went and burned down his house presuming that he'd forgive you. I said, it's a pretty shoddy way to treat somebody, don't you? Well, yeah, it is. I said, well, yeah, and, and God hates this sin. God is a merciful God, but he doesn't want anybody presuming on that mercy. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament, they make it very clear that there was no sacrifice for the sin of presumption. If you live the way these people live, you're presuming. In fact, people presume. I hear, I, these people say, well, I'm going to live it up and, and then I'll repent at the end. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What you don't understand is each decision you make, we talked about this the other day, changes you. You make your decisions, and then your decisions make you. And when you get out there where you're going to repent, you're presuming you're going to want to repent. I'm going to tell you, you probably won't. You won't be the same person. You won't be thinking the same as you're thinking now. God has designed it so that he doesn't doesn't let that happen. If you're going to make wrong decisions with a presumption, God will make sure that your decisions defeat that presumption. You understand what I'm saying? That, that, that's, that's a bad one. Presumptuous. Choosing to believe that your bad actions will finally result in success. Assuming that the law of sowing and reaping does not apply to you. Okay? That's why young people need older people in their life. That's why they need their parents. I used to say, you read those old fairy tales uh, we did in public school where somebody has a wish, and it's granted. Maybe they wish everything would turn to gold or whatever. I often wished I had one wish like that. You know what I would wish? I would wish that I would have the power to take each of you and put you 30 years into the future to see how your decisions today panned out. And then I'd like to bring you back to make those decisions. Well, I don't have that ability, but I can give you that perspective if you want it. That's about how much older your parents are than you. Mm -hmm. That's the perspective they have. I told my children, I don't think I'm any smarter than you, and I could name a couple of them I think are much smarter than I am. But there's one thing they can't get ahead of me on, and that's my years of experience. (laughs) They just simply can't do it. (laughs) I have a perspective. Now listen, older people have a perspective you can't possibly have at this point. Mark that down. Now you can learn it from them. You can get that perspective. But older people have, have... Gone through many more miles than you have. In fact, that's one... Now I'm really on, on a subject. 
It's one of the reasons why girls should ask their mother about the young boy who wants to court them. Their mother knows what marriage is. They don't. She's going to see things in that boy that they will not see. She's going to see characteristics that she very well understands in her imperfect husband that they're not seeing. And she knows what what those characteristics pan out to be. Same thing with the boys. They should talk to their dad, especially, about any girl they're interested in. He's lived with a woman, and he knows what women are like. He knows what their strengths are. He knows what their weaknesses are and what that pretty much all means and how how it affects everybody. I'm just, I'm, tr- I'm trying to show you, don't be presumptuous. Get all the wisdom that you possibly can. All right? The Bible says we're to get knowledge, and then it says, and then get understanding. Well, the Old Testament uh, taught the idea of getting knowledge by precept. Not by experience, but by precept. And then once you have put it to practice what you've been told, then you might gain some understanding. <laughs> But the main thing is to get knowledge and put it to practice, and then you will begin to understand. But knowledge is learned by precept. That's the best way to learn it. You can learn it the other way. You can learn it by experience. I've often said experience is a wonderful school to go to. The only problem is its colors are black and blue, if that's what you want. And you'll learn. All right? You might learn too late after you've made some decisions you wish you'd never made. Uh, that you have to live with in the rest of your life. So, <clears throat> how does the person handle authority? Is he presumptuous? Does he speak against things he doesn't even understand? All right? I think we'll go on to the next one. I think I made my point on that. Don't presume. Don't be impudently irreverent. Listen. Learn. Learn to identify these characteristics. Number two, the person is insatiably immoral. Notice I said insatiably. It means you can, he can never satisfy his lust. He's, he's, he's all out to, for his lust, but he can never completely satisfy. He's dominated by fleshly desires. We talk about a person's temperament. Do you know what temperament means? It means a mixture. It means a person who is properly tempered. Because there are two aspects of our being. One is the physical and the other is the spiritual. The physical is good in its place. People ask me, what's lust? I say, lust is a legitimate desire that has gotten out of control. That's what lust is. Notice I said it's a legitimate desire. It's legitimate to eat. But if you're not careful, that desire gets out of control and uh, I, we had a relative in the family got COVID. That relative was grossly overweight with sugar and high blood pressure and all those things. And then she got COVID. Well, she survived, but she was in the hospital for two months. And I doubt if she'd have had that ordeal if she had not been overweight. So, and, and I'm not being judgmental. She's a very fine person. But <clears throat> I, I give that as an example. Sleep is a, is a legitimate desire. But if you spend too much time sleeping, you can imagine what happens. And just go down through all the desires that you have. They're all legitimate, every one of them. But they have to be in their place. They have to serve the true aspect of our character, which is spiritual. The Bible says that which is seen is temporal. That which is not seen is eternal. 
So the spiritual aspect of our life is the most important aspect. And the physical has to serve the spiritual. If you turn that around and have the, the uh, uh, spiritual serving the physical, you end up with an immoral person. It has to be properly tempered. Okay? The spiritual has to be the dominating force of the life. And the Bible is very clear on this. My favorite verse in the Old Testament is Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Here it is. You can mark it down. I already gave you my favorite verse in the New Testament. It's 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward. That's my favorite verse in the New Testament. My favorite verse in the Old Testament is Proverbs 4, 23. Keep thy heart with all diligence. The heart is the seat of desire. That's, that's the Hebrew understanding of the heart. Keep your heart with all diligence. So it's telling you you have some control over your desires by the choices you make because the verses that follow say, watch what you say with your mouth because if you make a big mouth statement, you're going to have to live up to it. So watch what you say with your mouth. mouth. Watch what you see with your eyes. Watch where you go with your feet. Go look at the verses that follow Proverbs 4.23. It says you are the gatekeeper to your desires. Whatever you allow in your life, whatever you decide, whatever you do, whatever you think, it's all registering in the subconscious as a desire. Okay? And so you can program desires into your heart that are right. This goes on to say later in the passage, their heart they have exercised with covetous practices. See? Same thing. Their heart was conditioned by their covetous behavior. The desires were put there. If you never ate a banana, you would never have a desire for a banana. But once you eat a banana, there's a desire. Okay? And that's just the law of life. That's why we limit motion pictures for our children. I don't know if other people do, but we have. Because motion pictures will create a desire for motion pictures in a world where most motion pictures are not fit to see. Are motion pictures wrong? I used to say no, but I kind of think maybe there's something bewitching about them, and they're maybe not as neutral as we think they are. But anyway, that's free for whatever. But we limit certain things because we don't want to create desires. That is a law of life. What you are doing will create desires. All right? The verse I quoted is in verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. A heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Okay? Let's read this passage. But these, as natural beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things they understand not. And here's the part we want. And shall utterly perish. I'm sorry, I'm... Yeah, that's what I want. Shall utterly perish in their own corruption, insatiably immoral, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it a pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. So... uh, Basically, what it's saying is they're sex-dominated. They have eyes. They look at everybody with looking for possibilities for the expression of that part of their life. And all of it registers in their heart as desire. 
Okay. The irony of this approach to life, uh, we have it in at verse 13. Uh, they, they, they take a pleasure to riot in the daytime. Now, why would you want to riot in the daytime? Because that adds a little bit more spice to the riot. If you do it at night, you know, but if you do it in the daytime, <laughs> yeah, here I am. And that tells us something about this. And that is, if you're going to go down that road, sensual pleasure is never satisfied by indulgence. And you have to have more exciting, more exciting, more exciting, more exciting, till finally it's perversion, provided it's in the daylight, provided it's as rebellious and as obnoxious as you can possibly make it, because that's what you need to get the next thrill. That's the law. Okay? The other side of it is, if you restrain yourself and you discipline yourself, instead of your senses becoming duller, they become sharper. I tell people, you don't need to go to the next exotic restaurant. What you actually need is not to eat anything for three days and then good old mashed potatoes without anything on them will taste delicious. Am I making sense? See, fasting is not to impress God. It's to, it's to sharpen our, our spiritual sensitivity. That's what fasting does. That's why it's so important. I only once in my life, and this, I'm saying this to my shame, I only once in my life fasted for a week. And I was doing it with a group of other people. And I can tell you, at the end of that week, all I wanted to do was pray with those people. That was, that was an intense desire that I had. Much more intense than the desire I have for prayer under normal circumstances. And so the immoral person doesn't understand that. He's, he's pursuing an elusive pleasure that's always out there. And it's got to be more and more and more. Take eating. It's got to be this restaurant and that restaurant. Oh, did you hear about this restaurant? Oh, no, this restaurant is really, uh, there's the place to go. I'm putting it in sort of a legitimate uh, perspective that we all understand. You can just quit that whole thing. In every area of life. Sexually, I'm going to be very honest, even in marriage. Abstinence is a tremendous aspect of the true experience that God intended. In marriage itself, I'm being pretty blunt. But that's just, that's just a law of physical pleasure. The more you indulge it, the less you get. We call it the law of diminishing returns. The more you do, the less you get. And then you've got to do more and you get even less. And finally, you get to the place where you're getting almost nothing out of it. The other route is discipline abstinence, whatever you want to call it, and the sensitivities increase. And the normal things of life are just a great pleasure. This is the reward. He talks about the reward of unrighteousness. This is, this is what I see it is. The reward of unrighteousness is the more you do, the less you get. <laughs> the more unrighteousness you do, the less it, it uh, satisfies you. <clears throat> These people, by the way, are people who can call themselves believers. This is not talking about people in the world. This is talking about people who call themselves Christians. Somebody has said of the person who pursues pleasure, his hell 
is that his world contracts until the only thing he has left is the self that he has corrupted. That's all he has left. And this says they, they sport themselves at your feast. I think he's talking about communion. Yeah. There are homosexual preachers. There are divorced and remarried preachers. There are leaders in churches that are doing all these abominable things. Yeah, it can happen. He calls them brute beasts. They mistake the thrill of animal instincts with the Holy Spirit. I told you yesterday, some people, I think, have mistaken the rumblings of their stomach with the movings of the Holy Spirit. And every little twinge they have in their belly, they think is God speaking to them. It's all I can figure out when I hear them talk. Peter insists that the Holy Spirit is manifest in moral renewal. If you want to know if the Holy Spirit's working in somebody's life, you can see a moral renewal taking place. These are brute beasts. They have no reason. They're creatures of instinct. They're born to be killed and caught and destroyed. An animal is trapped by its own appetite. So what do you put in the trap? The food the animal wants to eat, and he goes for it, and he's trapped and, and destroyed. All right. Insatiably immoral. Number three. Intentionally ignorant. Verses 15 and 16. They have forsaken the right way and have gone astray following the way of Balaam. Balaam knew better. I always laugh when I read the story of Balaam. He wanted that gold so badly. He was intentionally ignorant in his pursuit. And so finally, God told him not to go. So he goes back and asks God, don't ever do that. If God tells you no, don't go back and ask. I'll tell you what will happen. He'll say yes. And you'll say to everybody, God told me to do it. And when somebody tells you that, don't disbelieve them. The Bible says that he sends people strong delusions who want to believe a lie. He helps them. He helps them to believe their lie. And so Balaam is told he can go. So he starts off. And you know what happened? An angel stood there with a sword to destroy Balaam, and he didn't see it, but the, the donkey did, and he goes over against the wall, and Balaam starts to beat up on him, and then he tries to make him go, and then he goes again and crushes Balaam's foot, and then Galem, Balaam gets off and uh, really uh, uh, abuses the donkey, and then the donkey talks. And it seems like that didn't even catch his attention. He starts arguing with the donkey. And then when that's all over, he says, now, Lord, if it displeaseth thee, uh, come on. (laughs) The point is intentionally ignorant. God tries desperately to get through, but they are determined to misunderstand. Greed obliterated Balaam's reason. The Bible calls it the madness of the prophet. This is insanity. Okay, this was moral depravity more than it was doctrinal error. I mean, people understand, but they deliberately, they manufacture all kinds of rational ideas to justify what they're doing. I told you yesterday that biologically, they tell us that our body constantly pursues homeostasis, which is to keep everything balanced. And so if something gets out of balance, the body goes to work to put it back in balance. 
The same thing is true morally. If you want to do wrong, your mind desperately wants to believe you're right. And so what you do is you, are, you cleverly generate excuses that make you believe that you're right when you're wrong. Don't underestimate your ability to do that. A famous preacher, I won't say his name. You might rec- In fact, many of you would recognize it. Built a $2 million mansion on a hill by a lake. And his colleagues criticized him for it. And then he gave his reason. He said, I am the member of the family that's expected to, to entertain my extended family. So I needed a residence that was sufficient to entertain my extended family. So then they checked. How many were in his extended family? Seven people. But see, he had himself believing that he had done right. But down deep in his heart, I'm sure he knew he was doing wrong. That's what we do. Intentionally ignorant. Okay? Number four. Insidiously ill-intentioned. They have bad motives to destroy. Verses 17 to 19. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure. That word is bait. They're holding out a bait. They're trying to catch somebody. They allure through the lust of the flesh, Through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. These people have nothing to offer. What they are offering is a mirage. It's an illusion. It's clouds without rain. All they have to offer is bombastic speech to make it sound like they have something to offer. Bold statements, scriptures to back up what they say. And the whole point is they have a motive to attract other people. Instead of grace, all this power to live a life that leads to true success They offer license to sin, okay? They dress up liberty as freedom to sin, okay? There's a novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover. I never read the novel, but I'm told that it pictures adultery actually as a holy sacrament. And I've heard about this. That Warren Jeffs that had that Mormon community that seduced almost every girl in the, in, the, in the community. He told them, this is a holy action. Insidiously ill-intentioned, okay? <clears throat> and I've heard that from other preachers that lured women into sin, that he convinced them that this was a holy action, that was something God uh, was getting glory from. Heresy always sounds great, in the speech, but it is lousy in the life. Okay? 
No man can serve two masters, but all men must serve one. And it will either be the spirit or the flesh. Liberty against law generates a new bondage. Their liberty is like playing cards in a smelly prison cell. Go break the law so you can join us and play cards in this smelly prison cell. God wants us to have noble, a noble, healthy mixture of the physical in its proper place, giving genuine pleasure under the control of the spiritual. That's what God wants. Freedom to truly satisfy every desire. The Bible says, they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. That's a promise. And finally, in the last point, we might close a little early here. Irredeemably iniquitous. Okay? Let's finish here with 20 and 20 through 22. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein. So see, these are people who had one time uh, experienced the gospel. That's, it's, it's not talking about people out there who never experienced the gospel. It's talking about people who called themselves Christians. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. All right. Jesus gave a parable one time of a a man who uh, got all the evil out of his house. He garnished it. He cleaned it up. He made it beautiful. And he didn't replace it with anything. And one of the devils came back and saw the place was empty and it was actually beautiful and ready for occupation. And he went out and got seven other devils and came back and they inhabited this place. And Jesus said, the end of that man was worse than the beginning. So, that's what he's saying. That's why Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. I want to talk about that a little bit. Hebrews 6, 4 says, if, well, let's read it. This verse has caused people a lot of problems, and I want to put it in proper, proper perspective in case uh, you ever have to consider what it really means. Verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted of the good word of God, and the powers of the word to come. They definitely were converted, okay? If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Now that verse is not written to discourage people who have found a way to repent and come back. Many people who have found repentance and want to come back and have stuck on this verse. I want you, what I want you to notice about this verse The problem is the person can't repent. The Bible is very clear, and I've had to point this out to people who were struggling with it. The Bible is very clear that the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. This is a warning. This is not trying to discourage people who found a way of repentance. 
This is a warning that if you go away from the experience you have, don't presume that you're ever coming back. That's what it is. And the fact of the matter is, I've lived long enough to see that people who leave the way of righteousness, almost never do they come back. Once in a blue moon, and then they have trouble with this verse. It's a warning. Don't you presume that if you play games with the experience you're having with God, that you will someday come back. He's saying it is highly unlikely. He used the word impossible. That's how unlikely it is. It's almost impossible. Because way leads on to way, and you get down there, you're not where you thought you were going to be with the possibility of returning. I had to throw that in as a warning. Irredeemably, notice that word, irredeemably iniquitous. The devil is determined to so condition you when you go down that road that you will never be able to return. So don't do it. When you're tempted, remember, I must pursue the way of righteousness. I may never be able to come back if I leave it. These people end up with ignorance that spews out the filth of life. It's a disgusting habit. They turn and eat the filth again that they one time hated. Virtue has lost its appeal. Peter's plain speaking in this chapter has a very practical purpose, just as Jesus' warnings always did. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. That's what Jesus said. We would be mistaken to assume it could never happen to us. Both scripture and experience assure us that it can. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Covetousness, sophistical arguments, pride in knowledge, gluttony, drunkenness, lust, arrogance against authority of all kinds, and most of all, the danger of denying the lordship of the Redeemer. Are these not all the paramount temptations of money-mad, sex-mad, materialistic, anti-authoritarian, 20th century man? And that's the world we live in. And the lure is there. Learn to recognize the undisciplined way. That's the red flag. Now, the way is the way of the cross. And I just want to uh, spend a few closing moments here. We have time to do this. What is this all about, this way of life that we've all been talking about? Francis Schaeffer told us that in every heart there's a throne and a cross. For the man of the world, self is on the throne. That's what we've been describing all morning. And Christ is on the cross. To become a Christian is to change that. It's to put Christ on the throne and self on the cross. I told you, selfishness is what sin is. That goes on the cross. But I want to be a little bit more practical. What do we mean by the cross? I want you to leave here with a good practical understanding as to whether or not you are actually taking the way of the cross. Jesus said you have to take up your cross every day. Really? What does that mean? Well, let's suppose this is the way of self, and this is the way of Christ. So you start off, 
and your flesh has sort of dictated a course. And all of a sudden you realize the way of Christ runs totally counter to the way you're going. And you have a decision to make. Are you going to keep going? Are you going to turn? In every decision, we have that to do. Are we going to keep pursuing our natural desires that want to lead us astray? Or are we going to make the decision to follow Christ? And the reason you have to take up every day is because you're going to do this all day, every day. You're going to make, every time you come to that decision and you realize that the way of Christ is something different from what you were pursuing, you're going to defer to the way of Christ. And the flesh is going to, it's not going to like it. It's, it's going to be a cross. Crucifixion is painful. <laughs> and so I want to leave you with this. Think about this. In every decision, when it's clear what Jesus wants for you, deny yourself, go take the cross, and make the turn. And do that all day, every day. By the way, when he was saying this morning about uh, praying without ceasing, I used to wonder how you could do that. And now I discovered there are people who can text without ceasing. So I guess if you can text without ceasing, you could have learned to pray without ceasing. I'll just give that for what it's worth. All right. So there it is. Plug that into your life, and your spiritual desires will dominate. They will put all of your fleshly desires in the proper perspective, and everything will be well-tempered, and you will experience life in its fullness, the way it's supposed to be experienced. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much that your word is so plain We cannot err unless we're dishonest. We cannot err unless we play games with what you've plainly told us. And Lord, you've called us to holiness, which is wholeness, which is to experience life in all its fullness with everything in its proper perspective. Oh God, help us to take up our cross and allow you to make adjustments in our life toward that beautiful goal every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Well, I'm sorry, Brother John.